investors often really need a, a niche product where, well, yes, we you, you want to buy a property that maybe has novel tube wiring or aluminum wiring or has an issue with title or an issue with foundation. So it's really about customizing a solution with the right lender at the best rates and terms. Hey, investors, you are listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, common sense strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We are all about passive investments with real gain, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Hello, fellow investors. This is Garrett Wong, your host of the Win Podcast. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Mike Schroeder, a local mortgage broker here in Winnipeg. Mike is a super technical guy, very purposeful in everything he does, and gives us a ton of information. Hope you enjoy the show. Let's get right to it. Okay, welcome to the podcast, investors. My name is Garrett Wong, your host, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Schroeder. Mike, how are you? Hey, doing well. What's yourself? Doing okay. We're shooting this, or I guess recording this, in the dead of winter, a couple of days before Christmas, and um, excited to hear what you have. Uh, Mike is our a mortgage broker here in Winnipeg, and I personally have used him, and very excited to hear what he has to say. Uh, Mike, why don't you just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your story and your background? Sure. So in March of this year, I'll have been a licensed mortgage broker for 10 years. Um, started off part-time, as I said, 10 years ago, went full-time about two years, two and a half years after that. And then right now, I've uh, achieved some extra accreditation. So I uh, have both my AMPC designation through Mortgage Professionals Canada. I'm working on my PMPC designation and I also have a course I'm working on with uh, Equifax that would give me uh, accreditation to help me prepare my credit. So it's uh, always trying to get uh, extra skills to make sure I can give the most value to my clients. Nice. And what uh, what were you before mortgage broker? Uh, so I was actually in management at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. I was uh, working my way up the corporate ladder. I actually moved out to Regina for uh, the company, made it up to a branch manager, and then decided that uh, I needed to change. Okay. And why why mortgage brokering? I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm just always interested in people's stories. As you know, I have a, a varied past as well in science, and now I'm in real estate. So uh, I love hearing these these types of uh, transitions. Uh, like many other great stories, it started off by logging onto Facebook one day. Uh, I had taken some time off when my third child was born. Logging onto Facebook one morning, saw a friend talking about mortgage rates. I'm like, I had looked into mortgage brokering years ago. I knew I needed a change of some type, but didn't know what I wanted. And what I figured out after chatting with him that I liked was I liked working one-on-one with people. So I, I didn't like managing large groups, but I love that one-on-one connection. And I love problem solving. I love being given a, a puzzle and being told to crack the puzzle, so to speak. Well, mortgage rules are becoming increasingly complex. So I fell in, really fell in love with helping clients get approved, and not just for the mortgage, but for the best product that matches their needs. So 
little bit of a tangent. There was a great quote I saw from uh, Warren Buffett years ago that said that business is a puzzle to be solved. And it always kind of rang true with me of I really enjoyed that problem solving side of this. That's how I got into it. Nice. Okay. You know, I, I've used you several times for my own personal uh, investment properties, my personal home. And I know that uh, you're very, 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 very well known in the you know investor community. So, I mean, it's not too much of a stretch for me to say that you seem to provide or specialize is in, in investors. Is, was that intentional? Uh, no, it actually happened very organically. So, kind of two events kind of conspired together to get me on that path. Uh, the first was my second year into it, I was still struggling to figure out, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to work in Canada? Do I want to work with first-time home buyers? Do I want to work with finances? And um, a friend of mine, he was in insurance sales, he said, hey, why don't you come and check out this real estate investor event? It's for a group that's no longer around anymore. Um, but I went into the event and I really fell in love with the people, what they were trying to do. And then by accident, I ended up at a mortgage brokerage that uh, did their own in-house private lending. So at the same time, I both ended up at a brokerage that specialized in private lending. And I was connected with the people who needed private lending. And so it seemed like uh, a natural fit to fit together. I know I mentioned Facebook before, but to bring that up again, I found that a lot of real estate investors are very plugged in through Facebook groups and messengers and different um, uh, chats all online. And I managed to connect with some of those people earlier on, and I get a lot of my business through connecting through those groups. So it's kind of those three things kind of working together, going to an in-person event, being at the right brokerage, and meeting the right people online uh, really got me into that niche. Okay. What would you say is uh, unique to an investor in trying to – those unique challenges on, the, on those files? Is it a bit different than a first-time home buyer? So the, the, the main things that come to mind are, number one, you're trying to often buy a property that the major banks don't want to touch. Usually they do the condition of the property or the source of the down payment is coming from or the client's credit. Any of those things can conspire to make it so that a bank doesn't want to lend on it. So we need to find the appropriate uh, private institution that wants to invest in that deal. With a first-time home buyer, really, as long as you have a certain level of credit, a certain level of income, and a good down payment, I can send your deal to TV, social, I can really send it anywhere. Investors often really need a, a niche product where, well, yes, we you, you want to buy a property that maybe has novel tube wiring or aluminum wiring or has an issue with the title or an issue with the foundation. So it's really about customizing a solution with the right lender at the best rates and terms. So that is a very good segue. Um, you mentioned terms, rates. You know, this, this is an investment podcast and we do want our audience to learn. I have a very servicey knowledge uh, about fixed and variable rate mortgages, but I'd like to hear from you. Maybe you could educate our audience. What, uh, what are the differences between fixed and variable rate mortgages? I'll actually have to add a third term in there as well, and that is adjustable mortgages. So media sources often misuse the word variable. So let me break it down. Fixed rate, fairly straightforward. The rate is set for the length of the term that you're committing to stay with the lender for, right? The average Canadian, about 75%, take a five-year term. So people are usually taking a five-year fixed rate. So you are committing to stay with that lender for five years. Um, on that note, a lot of people don't realize you can often get a better deal by taking a two- or three-year fixed rate, but that's something else I'm going to talk about later on. A variable rate mortgage is a mortgage where the interest rate can fluctuate 
based on the bank of Canada, based on the prime rate. But here's the key thing that a lot of people miss. Most people would understand an adjustable rate mortgage, meaning if the prime rate goes up, your payment goes up. If the prime rate goes down, your payment goes down. Fairly straightforward. But that's adjustable, not variable. What a variable rate means, your payment is set at the interest rate on day one. If the prime rate goes up, instead of you paying more per month, a little bit less of your payment goes towards principal, and a little bit more of your payment goes towards interest. If the prime rate goes down, a little bit more of your payment goes towards premium and principal, and a little bit less will go towards interest. So I'll ask my clients, what's more important to you? Would you rather get your mortgage paid off faster and build equity in your home, or would you rather manage your monthly cash flow? Those are two very different concerns based on the individual's needs. Interesting. I actually did not know that. I have been throwing around terms like fixed and variable, like most people do. So what you're saying then is... Don't feel bad because I've seen lenders misuse those terms as well. (laughs) So you're you're not alone. The other day I saw a certain bank, I won't name who it was, talking about their variable rate mortgage. I'm like, "Uh, no, that is an adjustable rate mortgage. Please use the right terminology. Interesting. No, I... uh... Well, this is my podcast and I'm taking notes. So uh, that's, that's great. I'm learning as well. Okay. So really what we're talking about mainly is a fixed or adjustable rate. That's what most people would probably have in their minds. The variable rate then locks in that payment, assuming that you can get that. And that's, I guess, the best for cash flow then, right? If, if you're coming from a rental property perspective. It can be. Now it causes its own problems. So one of the issues, so one of the biggest lenders in Canada to have a true variable product is TD Canada Trust. I place a lot of mortgages with them. But the problem they ran into is, is that as you, as the amount that you're paying against principal is going down, as the rates have gone up, there are many clients who've reached a point where their payment isn't covering their interest anymore. Now TD has had to call his clients and say, hey, you've basically gotten a free ride for the last eight to nine months because your payment hasn't changed. You either need to lock into a fixed rate make a lump sum against your mortgage to keep the principal in line, or you need to convert to a fixed rate. So it's each product carries its own risk. There's no such thing as a risk-free mortgage product. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess if you're looking for ultimate cash flow, maybe fixed would be best, or is it, I guess every situation is different for, for every investor. Well, if you really want to maximize cash flow, you would actually go with an interest-only product where you're not paying down the principal at all. But then you're going to the issue of not building the equity on the property. And so that's really a conversation to have with your accountant. That, well, what are your goals? If your goal is to be mortgage-free, you want to pay that down. But the part about a fixed rate that everyone forgets is the penalty. I see this time and time and time again. The most egregious case, this one still made me mad. This client had gone to a mortgage broker to get a mortgage for a flip. The house is in good condition, so they were able to replace it with a major bank, no problem. And the mortgage broker put the client into a five-year fixed-rate mortgage, knowing that the client was going to sell the house in six to eight months. That client paid a penalty called an IRD, interest rate differential. Basically, it's the return policy for the bank. That penalty worked out to being 6% of the mortgage balance. Most of profits were gone. The highest penalty I've seen was 8% of the mortgage balance. So when I'm sitting down talking to clients, it's not just a matter of the lowest rate. It's asking them, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being it's not going to happen, and 10 being it could happen tomorrow, 
what are the odds of you breaking your mortgage in the next five years? So if you're a first-time home buyer, I don't want to put you anywhere near a five-year fixed rate. Now, if you say that's what you want, I'll place you with what you're asking for. But first-time home buyers, chances are your marital status will change. You may change if you decide to have kids. Your job may change. You may move. You're in a phase in life where there's a lot of change about to happen. When you're a little more established in life or you have a long-term rental property, different story. Um, but you really have to be aware of those mortgage penalties. Uh, banks make a significant amount of, prop, uh, amount of profit from these penalties. And understanding when these penalties trigger and how much the penalty is going to be is a big decision. I see. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying because a first-time home buyer might need to expand, move, refinance. There's a whole bunch of different things that, that come with that brand new venture for them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. Well, maybe you could uh, start out by just giving us uh, a history over the past, I don't know, let's say three to five years of how the two products, I guess, fixed and variable or adjustable rates have, have varied over the last five years, three to five years. Sure. So it's it's interesting. So as a general rule, it's not the case now, but as a general rule, variable and adjustable rates, I'll just say variable from now on to make it simple. Variable rates are typically less than fixed rates, and the spread is usually somewhere between 0.6 and 0.7 up to 1%, right? Now, I've seen a spread as much as 1.5% between a fixed rate and a variable rate, and we're in a situation right now where variable rates are actually higher than fixed. But if you look back over, especially over 70 to 100 years of data, people who take the variable rate will pay less interest over the life of their mortgage than people who take the fixed. But that's the important caveat there, the life of the mortgage. So the, the word for that is amortization. How many years will it take to pay off your mortgage? Okay? So over 25 years, you'll pay less if you take the variable or adjustable rate. That doesn't mean that there won't be any terms in there you won't pay more. But it means over the big picture, you do save money. The question is, can you afford the weather the storms of a variable rate being so high? It will happen on you. Okay. And I'll, maybe I'll throw another thing into the mix there. In your, I guess, professional experience, how many people actually make it through to paying off a, like an entire amortization period? Like, does that... I mean, I sell properties. I don't know the. I don't. I've yeah. I've never had a property that I've taken through to completion. I've always either sold it or or something has happened to it. And for the most part, we don't. I don't have data on over the entire amortization. I can tell you that uh, for the average Canadian over the five year term, about two thirds of Canadians break their mortgage in about three years. But that's kind of the midpoint. It's either you're moving, you're going through a divorce, you have kids. You may need to refinance to do renovations, but usually it's about three years. Um, rental properties, of course, be a lot longer because most people aren't buying a rental for a short term. Um, but that does happen on big. Very neat to be able to see that that subset of, of data just on rental properties uh, for investors. I, I mean, what is one to do? How do you how do you counsel somebody to for which product from an investment perspective? So we're going to talk about investors. So in particular, people that are buying rental properties. The hard part I really see right now is that with the higher rates at the moment, it's the issue of cash flow in the property. So let's pick on the big greenie bank, TD, for a second. Their five-year fixed rate today for rental property is about 5.3%. TD will do up to a 30-year amortization, lowering that payment for you. So my first question to a client is, can your property cash flow at 5.3%? 
Now, the variable rate's higher actually right now. It's at about 5.8, 5 5.9% for a five-year variable. So that's the first question. Can you qualify, can you cash flow a property at a higher rate? Second question is, are you buying the property under value? So for some people, their strategy is buy a property under value, renovate it, refinance it to pull their equity out of it, put a renter in place. I sometimes shorten to the birth strategy. I'm not going to put you to a fixed rate if you want to burn the property within a year. I'm just going to trigger a penalty. So maybe a combination of a variable rate or an open mortgage to get you into the property, get the renovation work done, and then refinance it to a fixed rate depending on what your long-term strategy is. I'd say as well, and I think this is a question you may be able to answer, if you're a first-time uh, buyer of a rental property, not of a primary residence, if you're buying rental for the first time, you might try it for one or two years and then say to yourself, why did I get myself into this? I want to get out of this and sell the house. Well, if you're locked into a five-year fixed rate, you don't have the option to get out. You're going to pay a penalty just to get out of it. If you're buying rental for the first time, you may want to do a two- or three-year fix to give you an exit strategy in case it doesn't work out for you. It's that exit that triggers so much extra money. Like, forget saving 0.2 or 0.3 on the rate. It's that penalty that nails people up the time. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, we probably have close to 400 property management clients in, in Upper Edge, and the majority of them only own, you know, one property. And out of those, I would say 25 or 30% are purposely buying their first rental property rather than just, hey, I have a house. I'm going into my now dream house. I'm going to keep my old one as a rental. Um, so I, I don't know. Obviously, I don't get into their finances, but it'd be very interesting to know what their term that they chose on a first rental property would be out of that subset of that 25 or 30%. Um, and one thing that my mentor in the industry taught me years ago, he had a short, to a short phrase, life is variable, your mortgage should be too. And I think there's something to be said that I can't predict the future, but I want to make sure I'm flexible enough to have a mortgage product that allows the flexibility to change. So, for example, um, our first home we bought here, we bought it with an adjustable rate mortgage. Uh, we then refinanced the home, and due to a rate throughout the time, we decided to go with a one-year fix because I liked the one-year fix was a better rate than the variable rate at the time, and it gives us that flexibility to assess where we're at a year later and go, when we refinance it, do we want to stay in this house for a longer period of time, or do we want to get out of it and sell and not try the penalties? So... There are penalties on variable rate mortgages, though, aren't they? Aren't those considered closed and open, too? So they're closed, but it's only a three-month interest penalty. So the shorthand for that, it usually works out to being something like 0.4% of the mortgage balance. Okay. So it's, there is a penalty, but it's a minimal penalty. With a fixed rate, you're triggering what's called interest rate differential. Now, on that note, I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but the big thing to keep in mind is that the big banks have a convoluted formula they use to calculate your mortgage penalty based on a discount off the posted rate that, like I said, I don't, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail, but banks tend to have penalties that are often two to three times higher than credit unions or monoline lenders. So if you absolutely want a fixed rate mortgage, make sure you're not with a lender that's going to penalize you for breaking that mortgage uh, higher than they have to. And actually, on that front, there is one bank I'd like to call out, and that'd be CIBC. CIBC often pushes for people to take the cash back, but what they don't tell people is that if you break that mortgage early, you have to repay the cash back. 
So if you get, say, 3% cash at close and you have a $400,000 mortgage, hey, great, I just got $12,000. Yeah, well, what if you have to you know, cancel that mortgage in three years and you have to pay that money back? That's a pretty steep penalty for getting some extra cash because nothing is free. Yeah, wow, I did not know that. So buyer beware. Yeah, I'm not against cashback mortgages. Like, I'm, I'm not against them. They are, they are a very good tool, um, especially if you have a credit card balance and you want to get that paid off with the purchase of the house where you can pay off the credit card with a higher mortgage rate. But there's always a cost. The rent always comes due, so to speak. Wow. So what are the current, I think you just briefly touched on that, but what are the current rate differences, uh, I guess, today between a fixed and variable rate mortgage? And I say today because I know that I've seen some some information where it, it, it's changing almost on a daily basis. <laughs> um, so this also depends on the lender types and on the mortgage type. So uh, if I can kind of break it down to, if we're talking rental properties, you're looking at rentals in kind of that five point. 5.3 range on a five-year fixed, give or take. Five-year variable, you're looking at closer to 6%, right? If it's an owner-occupied house, I've seen uh, fixed rates today as low as 4.7, 4.8. They've actually gotten quite low. And on that note, if you want to try to track rates a bit better, it's important to understand the right terminology. So I see a lot of online news sources saying, giving misleading headlines, it's like, well, interest rates are going up. Fixed rates going up or variable rates going up. They are not the same thing. So on that note, variable and adjustable rates go up when the Bank of Canada announces the overnight rate is cheap. At the end of every year, the Bank of Canada gives the next 10 dates in which they will be making their, their, their announcements. So uh, the next one is the third Wednesday in January. Okay? So that's the next time that fixed sorry, variable or adjustable rates can go up. Fixed rates are based on either the bond yield or they're based on GICs, depending on which lender you're using. So I track the bond market every day. Well, the bond market has collapsed in the last month or so. It has fallen drastically, which is why we're seeing fixed rates drop. But the variable rates have not. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. I mean, I if I were buying a property today, what would you recommend to do? One of the questions I like to ask clients comes down to this says, if you saw the news tonight that interest rates were going up, it doesn't, I forget if you can afford it or not. If you saw the news tonight that interest rates were going up, would you lose sleep over that? What is your level of risk tolerance? At the end of the day, I don't care if you save a couple thousand dollars over the year. If you save money on a variable mortgage, but you're going to lose sleep, it's going to cause unnecessary stress in your life. What is that worth to you? So, if you don't have a good tolerance for stress, take it fixed. But you don't have to take a five-year fixed. You can take a two, three, or four-year. You can take a one-year. You can take a six-month. Now, here's where I'm going to bash mortgage brokers a bit. Spoiler alert, we get paid a higher commission to lock a client up for five years than if you want a two- or three-year. So if someone just pushes a five-year fixed rate at you, ask them, well, is there a two- or three-year option that's better? I've placed a number of clients in two- or three-year fixed mortgages right now because there's a a very high possibility rates could fall in the next couple of years. Now, is that guaranteed? Of course not. But I'm trying to give my clients flexibility. It doesn't matter if it pays me a lower commission. It's the right product to put people into a two or three year fixed. So before you just sign the dotted line, make sure that you actually want to be locked in for five years. I think where your life was at five years ago, you think how many changes can happen in five years. Do you really want to make that kind of commitment to one lender for that time? Mm-hmm. So 
if somebody's buying a rental property today and the variable rate happens to be higher than the fixed and you have risk tolerance, you have to kind of, if you're choosing variable, I guess you putting words into your mouth, but do you have to sort of have that faith and hope that it will readjust and start to outpace the fixed? You do. And, and you also have to ask of how many times does the bank of Canada have to raise rates until this property is no longer profitable? You know, if you have a wide margin there and you can afford to cover that, you will pay less interest of life for mortgage by taking that variable rate. But if your strategy is where you're relying on that cash flow to fund maybe a different business or other projects, you may have to sell for a product you don't like in order to maximize that cash flow. Now, I'm not sure I mentioned this before, but there is a third option, and that's taking out a mortgage as a home equity line of credit instead. Um, you don't do that for the rate. Rates in that are quite high at the moment, but you would do that because you can make interest-only payments on it. So if you don't want to pay down the mortgage at all, there are mortgage products out there where you can just pay the interest on it, but then you run into the issue if you're not building any equity. What happens if the value of the property goes down? You could be in trouble later on down the road. Yes, I know it's heresy to say that property values can go down in Manitoba, um, but I've seen several deals this month fall apart because of due to uh, new construction that was started two years ago. And the values now are not lining up with the values from two years ago. They're not appraising. So if you're maxing out um, at the highest LTV possible and you're not paying down principal enough, you can be creating a different problem for yourself down the road. I see. Did you know that there is a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants. And they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands-off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, Listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Upper Edge Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there is a fit. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. Let's transition a little bit to more of an opinion. I know that you've been fairly active on Facebook and I seem to remember you being, you know, in, in recent months, last year, let's say, being the champion of variable rate mortgages, has the current interest rate climate changed your opinion at all? It's reminded me that once in a lifetime or once in a generation events happen more often than you. I can show you all the data over decades that show that variable is superior to fixed. If people will throw my face the rate, the current rates in this year. And my retort to that would be, yes, you're right. In the last nine months, you've been better off if you took the fixed. What happens five years from now when you mortgage up for renewal and you take it fixed again? Do you save money that time? Or the term after that? 
or the term after that. It's like people who try to time the market in the stock market purchases. Yes, you may occasionally succeed and beat the market, but you're not going to beat the market year over year, decade over decade. I'm still a believer in the variable mortgage as long as you have the risk tolerance for it. I believe the data does back that up. Uh, but you also have to have the right personality type and you have to understand the risk that's going into it because a fixed rate mortgage has a different risk. You are locking in that property for long term and, and taking a, a, a risk of penalty. As long as you understand the risks, you can make the whatever decision you want to, but I want to make sure you understand the risks. Yeah, no, and I think what I'm learning here today is there's no right or wrong answer. Um, I'm also uh, a champion and a believer of using history for my for my predictions on what I want to do. Um, yes, some people can get lucky and you can take any slice of time and turn it into you know, whatever you want it to look like, right? To your benefit or disadvantage. You know, what would you say the long game looks like for fixed versus variable rates? And how long would an investor need to hang on to a property in order to realize any advantage? The, the real concern of this next year is the instability, the political instability in the world right now. Um, I'll point in particular to the crisis between uh, Russia and Ukraine. I want to avoid the politics on that and focus on if that situation were to intensify, that will affect two key things. That will affect uh, commodity prices and that will affect supply chain issues. Either of those things that will actually let me, let me backtrack a bit. One thing we didn't cover was why are variable rate mortgages keeping on going up? Well, the reason why they keep on going up is that the Bank of Canada believes that one of its key missions is to keep inflation in check. And Tip Macklin, the head of um, the Bank of Canada, says they want to bring inflation back down to their goal, which is 2%. Now, the inflation numbers in October were 6.9%. The inflation numbers in November were 6.8%. They're not coming down by much. They do not want to see entrenched inflation. They have said repeatedly, we will raise rates until inflation is back in line. What can affect inflation? Commodity prices, supply chain issues. We could also see an issue where our wages don't come down. Wages right now are actually increasing a lot due to demands in the, in the labor market. If those issues don't start coming down, if we don't see inflation coming down, Bank of Canada could keep on hammering from the point of raising rates. Now, remember as well that when those variable rates go up, it doesn't just affect your mortgage. It can affect your credit card, affects your line of credit, affects your home equity line of credit, affects your student loans, anything related to the variable rate. And so if we don't see inflation come down, we're going to see the Bank of Canada keep on raising those rates until it does. And all it takes is one black swan event to really push that further. We see a resurgence of COVID lockdowns again next year. There are so many unknowns that I don't even want to make a prediction of rates are going to be at this next year. Now, the government could go too far and they could induce a recession, which, of course, the way you cure a recession is by lowering rates, right? The economist Benjamin Tall from CIBC recently said that if you look at every recession over the last 40 years, they're all caused by federal government monetary policy. So the federal government is very aware they have the power to cause a recession. A recession isn't actually necessarily a bad thing for the real estate market. It, it can bring rates down quite a bit and can make it a bargain time to buy a house. Maybe not a great time for refinance, but it can be a great time to buy. Uh, sorry, that was a little off topic. 
No, no. I, you know, it's uh, it kind of segues into the next question I was uh, planning on asking you. You know, real estate investors are really the majority of them that come to me are all about cash flow. Um, I have my personal opinion on whether that's a correct uh, thing or not. But you know, what is your advice in the current climate for a real estate rental? Is it still worth it to hold a rental even at a neutral or negative cash flow? Uh, what's what would you say to them? Real estate over the long haul is still a good investment. It's like asking if uh, post-secondary education is a good investment. You may not see the return on it for a number of years or even a decade, but the return over your lifetime is still there. Holding real estate is still one of the greatest ways of building wealth in Canada. I, I am a big believer that even just holding a primary residence is a fantastic way to build wealth in Canada. Manitoba has one of the most stable real estate markets in all of Canada. Uh, unless If there's one that's more stable than Winnipeg, I don't know what that would be. And so over the long run, should you hold real estate in Manitoba? Yes. Yes, you should hold real estate in Manitoba. Do you have to weather some bad terms here and there? Absolutely. But it is still a good investment. I would agree. Like I was just saying, I, I see a lot of people that, um, you know, they might have a hot water tank for 1200 bucks. I'm talking about my clients now in property management. And they get stressed about it. Oh, this is going to kill my cash flow. But, you know, I, I counsel them because... When you look at the principal pay down, what the market is doing at the end of that year, whether you're getting a hundred bucks worth of cash flow on a single family or a few hundred dollars on a on a duplex, I think that really pales in comparison to what you're talking about, which is property investment. I mean, if you want twenty four hundred dollars out of your cash flow on a duplex for the entire year, there's a lot easier ways to make twenty four hundred dollars in an entire year, right? Instead of twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars on on a typical investment that you that you hold for that time period. Well, one of the things I wish I had done differently, I mean, I'm 41, almost 42 years old. I look at young people today who are looking you know, to flip houses or build a real estate portfolio. And my first thought is buy a duplex at 5% down, live on one side, rent on the other side. Buy a triplex 10% down, live on one side, rent on the other side. And then after you've lived there for six months to a year, save up money for down payment and move into another duplex or triplex at 5 or 10% down. There's nothing sexy about it. There's nothing glamorous about it, but it's that slow, steady accumulation of equity in the properties that you get when you move from property to property at 5 or 10% down rather than trying to save up a 20% down payment for a rental property. A lot, a little bit of a digression. I see far too many people, especially young people, are getting seven, eight, nine hundred $900 a month car payments and then asking why they can't afford a house. So you want to invest in real estate? Own a cheaper car. Move into a smaller starter home. Plan to move out in a short period of time to rent it out. Uh, don't overlive in your twenties and start investing in real estate for the long haul. No, I'm. Uh, I have a twenty-year-old at home, and um, for several years now, he's been saving up, trying to save up that five percent. He's in university now, but yeah, he wants to buy a duplex and do the house hack because uh, that is the best way to have that other. That other unit, pay for your mortgage, pay for all your expenses. You can live for free and still build uh, equity. So it's definitely a, a great plan for young people. Absolutely. I love speaking of business and entrepreneurship. Um, kind of wanted to transition there because um, when I first met you, <laughs> I remember you were just starting to go to the gym. This is a few years ago. And now I've seen some pretty inspiring things on social media, um, if you're willing to talk about it. So my question for you now is, as an entrepreneur, what is your view on healthy living? Oh, oh you're going to hear some passion on this topic. 
Richard Branson, the, the billionaire, was once asked, what's the best business advice he would give? And he'd say, exercise six days a week. And hands down, that's the best business advice he'd ever give. Three and a half years ago, I had a doctor tell me, well, you've got high blood pressure, you're pre-diabetic, so you can either uh, work out and lose weight or you can die young. I chose the path of exercise, and I'm very thankful I got in that habit before COVID because, honestly, it helped me survive the stress of lockdowns. And- yeah, so I I've, couldn't agree with you more. I try, you know, to stay healthy. I, I have to admit, like most people, I'm not as not as good as I want to be, but maybe can you describe for the audience some of the different accomplishments that you've achieved over the past few years? Yeah, so I started with a personal trainer about three and a half years ago. And then a friend of mine, uh, she was training for a couch to 5K program. I'm like, okay, 5K, I, I can do that. So I did, I, I bought this app on the iTunes or on the uh, Google Play Store for it. It was $2, whatever it was, to, to get you from sitting on the couch to jogging 5K. Well, what should I do next? Oh, well, how about a 10K? So I was lifting weights and I decided, you know, let's go to train for a 10K. Well, I hit that, then a 15K, and then a half marathon. And I could have set my eyes on, on a full marathon. So it took, me, it took me almost three years, but I ran my first full marathon this year. And in that year with the CrossFit training, so I, I increased my bench press. I can bench over 215 pounds. Uh, I can do a back squat over 315. I've got a deadlift of almost 400 pounds. Um, so it's uh, this next year, my the goal I'm currently training for, I'm going to be doing a half marathon, but in February. So it's called a hypothermic half. And then I'd like to focus on some potential CrossFit competitions in the next year or two. Amazing. Yeah, and that's all <laughs> three and a half years ago being told, hey, you have to start exercising to this. That's That's incredible. Well, I, I may have a bit of a, a bit of intensity to my personality, so you definitely don't have to go the path that I went. But I'll tell people all the time: do not overthink exercise. If all you did was walk for half an hour to an hour a day and some body weight exercises—push-ups, squats—that's it. You would be ahead of ninety percent of the population. It really doesn't take much to hold a base level of fitness. Running's terrible for you. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. It is terrible for your body. If you walked every day and did bodyweight workouts, you'd be ahead of everyone. Yeah. So um, how would you then say that exercise has impacted your business? I have become a goal setter where I actually have a physical journal. I write up my goals and there's nothing quite like starting the day off with a win. And so when you start off your work day, you've already had a win. And that win could be even, to me, a crappy workout is still a win because it means that I woke up early, I went, and I did it. And starting off, I think people take the mindset thing too far. You can you can take any good idea too far, but when you're starting off your day going, I have accomplished something good already, it prepares you to go and find success in a business for that. I would agree. Um, you know, I do a lot of reading as well, successful CEOs, business people, entrepreneurs, um, they all seem to have a morning routine. Do you have a morning routine and can you share it with our audience? Sure. So uh, I'm an early riser. I get up at 5 a.m. So I get up, I make a cup of coffee, I have some overnight oats. Uh, I sit down, I read, I journal, kind of prepare myself the next half hour or so. And then I work out from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. My office is currently at home. And so uh, I my gym's about five minutes away, so I'll go there, train in the morning, come home, 
from 7 till about 7.45, I'm showering, changing, eating breakfast, getting ready for the day to see my kids. And then I'm rolling into my office quarter to 8, 8 o'clock or so and get started. Nice. Nice. And that's fairly steady, would you say? Like you, that's kind of, you. would, would you call it a routine? It is. Uh, I had an injury about a month and a half ago. And so that kind of, an injury happened at the same time when I was sick. So I missed about a week, week and a half working out. But otherwise, I'm very consistent at, at five to six days a week of working out. Um, Saturdays, I usually don't wake up at five on Saturdays. I'll wake up at six or seven. And, and then Sundays, I try to keep as either rest day or active recovery. And then you go out skating, walking, uh, snowshoeing. Uh, just tried snowshoeing last week and actually really enjoyed that. Yeah, I uh, I just bought a set of snowshoes myself last week or two weeks ago. So I'm waiting for the temperature. Oh, I'm not well, not waiting for the temperature. I'm waiting for some time to be able to try that. But uh, speaking of time, as uh, a lot of entrepreneurs don't tend to do this, do you schedule regular time off? It's difficult for my business to take off multiple days. So it's more so I schedule time for myself within the day. So, for example, there's a coffee shop here in town. I'll sometimes block off an hour of my time, I'll leave my cell phone at home, and go there with a book and pen and paper. I'm a big believer in things that are tactile. I like my record collection. I like my physical books. I like my journal, my physical journal. And so I'll take time to go there to refresh. Um, next week, for example, I've got time booked at a sauna studio in Winnipeg. So I'm going to work out in the morning. Then I'm going to go sit in the sauna for 40 minutes, do a stretching routine in there. And my next habit I'm trying to get into is a meditation habit. I've been trying now for about two years. Hasn't stuck yet, but I'm, uh, that's going to be one of the things I'm going to focus on this next year is building an, an afternoon 20-minute meditation habit. Nice. So I, I try to get away a little bit, but I guess you, you kind of alluded to that. I, I guess I wasn't really asking, do you go on vacation, but blocking time off for connections, for things that matter to you, like you say, reflections. So that's great. But has that impacted your business in a positive way? It is. So about 10 years ago, a friend of mine got me into backcountry camping and hiking. And so in the summertime, that's something I like disappearing into the woods for a day or two. And just, it's nice when you go to a place with no cell phone reception. So you don't, then you don't have to worry about turning your phone off. You're just you in the woods. And I've gotten my kids into that as well. So um, this last year, I got my the two youngest. We hiked in about five kilometers, got completely swarmed by mosquitoes, uh, set up camp overnight. And this is after driving three hours, riding about a national park. So it was a hard day, but the boys got out of it that, yeah, it's hard, but we can do hard things. And that's the main thing my boys learn is that we can learn to do hard things while I'm setting up for whatever they consider to be successful. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I really value friends, friendship, family. So important. As we're ending the near of the podcast here, I always ask every guest this question, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. So uh, this is the win podcast, as you know. How do you define success, and what does winning look like for you? I'm really trying to bring it down to every day. What would a win be for me today? And that could be connecting with my kids. That could be connecting with my wife. It could be winning something for a client. I tend not to look at the big picture. I kind of focus on each individual day of, okay, well, am I going to get my work done today? Am I going to get some reading done today? Am I going to connect with my wife and kids today? Am I going to serve my community today? And when I'm journaling in the morning, kind of saying, well, what, what would I, what would today, what would a win look like? And then I kind of, I write out what that win today would be. So one day it could be 
okay, well, today I really need to spend an hour prospecting new clients. A win would be not necessarily getting a new client, but it could be an hour spent on the phone, cold calling, putting the time in without distractions. That's a win. So it's it's setting, it's defining that win for every single day. Um, if you get 1% better every day over a lifetime, you're going to see massive improvement. I don't try to go for big, massive change in my life. I try to go for just a 1% improvement in a different area. Nice. Well, I can uh, I can see how much you've improved over the last three and a half years, just uh, following you a little bit. And those 1% add up, don't they? They do. And it's in praise of incrementalism. I, I see it every year for, um, for New Year's resolutions. I'm going to change everything. No, you're not. You're not going to change it. Change one thing. Decide, don't decide to try to work out five days a week if you're, not, if you're doing it no times. Work out twice a week. Do it for a month. Then try it three days a week. Don't try to read. A, I hear some people say, well, my goal is to read a book a day. You're not going to. No. I don't care what any business owner or CEO says. No one actually reads a book a day. You're reading an executive summary. That's all you do. But you might say a goal is, oh, if you're not a reader, okay, I'm going to read a book a month. What is a goal you can actually accomplish? And then once you actually accomplish that goal, add on to it. I didn't set up to run a marathon. I set up to run a 5K. And I just slowly, incrementally, added on to that goal until I achieved that. Excellent. Well, that is a great place to stop. Mike, I'd love to thank you for um, spending some time with me today and sharing with the audience your insight and expertise. And we will definitely see you around. Thanks for coming. Thank you. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to Win is not only about helping you to win more, but WIN actually stands for Wise Investors Network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to learn more. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.